Welcome to the Cybersecurity Readiness Podcast Series with Dr. Dave Chatterjee. Dr. Chatterjee is the author of Cybersecurity Readiness, a holistic and high-performance approach, a recently published book by Sage Publishing. He has been studying cybersecurity for over a decade, authored and edited scholarly papers, delivered talks, conducted webinars and shops, consulted with companies, and served on a cybersecurity SWAT team with chief information security officers. Dr. Chatterjee is an associate professor of management information systems at the Terry College of Business, the University of Georgia, and visiting professor at Duke University's Pratt School of Engineering. I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Gary Scobie, Deputy Chief Information Security Officer, the University of Edinburgh. Gary is a certified information system security professional and ITIL expert and is featured in the Global Top 100 Leaders in Information Security published by Corinium Global Intelligence in 2021. He regularly presents on computer security, including sessions on ransomware, mobile security, and cyber in the movies. Prior to this, Gary was responsible for Microsoft Windows Server Infrastructure and an enterprise active directory. Having trained as an ethical hacker, Gary has particular interest in vulnerability assessment. The theme for our discussion today is protecting academic institutions from ransomware and other forms of cyber attacks. The recent ransomware attacks on Colonial Pipeline and JBS Foods are grave reminders that organizations must constantly be at a high state of readiness and alert. Educational institutions have been the target of ransomware attacks for a while now. The Acronis report mentions University College London, University of Cal Calgary, Los Angeles Valley College, and Carleton University as victims of such attacks. While ransomware has been the most popular and devastating form of attack over the years, hackers are adept at coming up with other innovative and lethal forms of attacks. The chief information security officer function, the CISO function, has a critical role to play in protecting an organization from these ever-evolving attack vectors. There is also growing recognition that the CISO is much more than a risk or technology officer. They are business enablers and must be involved in strategic and value creation activities. With that introduction and context, I'd like to bring Gary into the discussion by asking him, what do you see as the single biggest threat right now? How do you protect an organization such as yours from such a threat? Okay, well, thank you very much for, for inviting me. It's most appreciated. So what I see as a single uh, biggest threat, mm -hmm. I have to say it's ransomware, I believe is the biggest threat to an organization just now, and in particular, human-led ransomware which um, is resulting in, in theft of data and threat of publishing if we, we don't pay up. Now, I'll give you an example. I've seen ransomware attacks before where uh, a user with you know, privileged access has uh, launched a piece of ransomware through a phishing email. They've encrypted a drive, and then all we've done is run the backup, you know, go to the store. A couple of hours later, we're all good. The trend now that, that we're seeing is that uh, attackers, if they can get inside your network, um, they will steal your data first, they will then encrypt, and they will also hit your critical infrastructure in the hope that um, they're going to hinder any chance of you being able to do any restore back to normal service in, in the hope that you will pay up. And um, for me, that is um, potentially the, the worst case scenario that, uh, that we could um, envisage at the moment. Okay, Gary, for the benefit of many of our listeners, I'd like to do a quick review of ransomware. Ransomware is a very popular and devastating form of attack, 
where the malware freezes victim machines and networks and the criminals demand a ransom, typically in cryptocurrencies such as bitcoins, for victims to regain access to their data and systems. There is no guarantee that paying the demanded amount will ensure a full recovery of encrypted files and immediate restoration of interrupted services. This malicious code is typically spread through phishing emails when victims unknowingly visit rogue sites. In addition to email attachments, this malware also spreads through infected software applications, infected external storage devices, and compromised websites. So Gary, this, that must, this must be a really challenging proposition for a person like you holding a CISO position in an academic institution. How do you, how do you go about protecting your organization and its people? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 you're absolutely correct. It's um, human-led ransomware now is really almost like in a, in, a, in a global scale within your organization. And, and, and the potential uh, impact to it can be devastating. Now, you know, in, in terms of, you know, how do you protect and what do you protect? You know, I think it's easy to, um, you know, within academia, um, any, uh, you know, solutions we put in place need, need to be appropriate. Um, they need to be affordable and, and realistic and proportionate to the, the, the level of threat that, that we perceive. It's, um, you know, and it's all about taking uh, balanced risks. So, you know, for example, you know, for, for this, this type of attack now, you know, your endpoint security is critical, but you've got to look at network segmentation, you've got to do your vulnerability management, your privileged access management, your multi-factor authentication, making sure your remote desktop protocols are, are not open to the internet, uh, making sure you've tested your, your backup and restore, and also putting in, you know, anomaly based detection technologies to try and identify attacks should they get underway. Um, and all of that stuff um, has to be uh, put into, into place. But I think when it comes down to it, it's all about the basics. And, and, and as, as you'll know, the, the basics are the hardest things to do and, and to get right. It's all about your, your people, you know, your patches and, and your processes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, Gary. In fact, you you mentioned about several measures that you would take technically to secure the organization and the people. But but at the same time, I'm sure um, you know you're aware that some of the challenges that the education sector has to deal with one is students engaging in risky online behavior. Two the highly open and interconnected nature of campuses, which makes it easier for malware infiltration once they find a vulnerability uh, point, vulnerable point of entry. And third, cost pressures often result in institutions not having the best technologies in place. So these three factors are often mentioned in articles. Uh, about the challenges of securing academic institutions from such attacks. What are your thoughts? Okay, um, those those are absolutely absolutely valid. I mean, we could you know you could give me lots of budget, and I could just spend it, and there's still going to be no guarantee that um, that that is going to be effective. Um, I think within academia, it's important to recognise. Uh, first of all, engaging with the business, understanding you know, and making sure everybody understands the, the risks uh, with the positions and the decisions that they're taking, uh, identifying what is absolutely critical to the organisation and, and making effort to protect that. Because you're right, you're not going to wait. We're an open environment uh, and we're proud of that. Uh, and we do lots of collaboration, lots of connectivity. And, um, and, and we can't, you know, let... The, the possibility and the threat of, of, uh, of ransomware, you know, destroy that. Otherwise, it would cease to become, you know, a university and what makes us special. So there's that balance of risk um, against the, you know, the perceived threat plus the cost of putting in, in, in appropriate measures. So it's difficult. You know, there's no doubt about that. 
Absolutely. And, and you're so correct that you have to find that balance between convenience and control. Yeah. And uh, as uh, as a faculty member myself, we value our autonomy, we value our mobility, yet we don't want to be a victim of such attacks. Um, so I'm sure, Gary, uh, you would consider education training to be important methods for reducing the yes. possibility of such attacks. Could you speak to that? Uh, one, one of the, uh, yes, I mean, security awareness. I mean, I see, you know, you asked me about threats. I think not having a security awareness program is a threat in itself. And uh, I think it's very important that um, security awareness is um, is looked upon as, as strategic within any organisation. And uh, we do um, a great deal of, uh, of awareness. Um, we are out every week um, talking you know, about different aspects of, of security. We um, one one way I've decided to try and address the, the, the security awareness piece is by uh, creating a champions an infosec champions network. I I kicked that off at the, the start of this year, and essentially we we put out an, an advert in our newsletter, and it was great that about fifty people actually read that. And, and signed up, and uh, and these are um, you know they're academics um, and uh, other computing officers and professional people around the university who have all come together in order to, to assist us with actually pushing the awareness message out within their own business units and their own areas, which I think is ter terrific. And uh, I think we're now up to around about sixty-seven. I think have, have now joined, and it's a way by which we can meet with them every month help you know push the message out and then they can help to distribute that message uh, through the through the university um and that is one one um major thing that i've done this year in terms of security awareness to to, to raise the, the the level of awareness within the organization and i think it's been very successful so far you know congratulations because to get uh, champions evangelists to help spread the message to uh, enhance the credibility of uh, raising the level of awareness is so critical. And I'm glad to hear that you're getting that kind of support from the institution that I'm sure speaks volumes about you and your abilities. Um, along those lines, is there anything in particular that academic institutions should be doing when it comes to offering the training programs that a person like myself, a faculty member, is required to go through every several months, every six months. What, what are some elements that are key um, for that program, for those cyber education training programs? Right, I think one thing in particular that I found is in my own uh, institution, mm -hmm. I think it's great that I now have academics and researchers coming to me and saying, I want to do this. I found this thing in the cloud. Is it okay I do this from an infosec perspective? Now, it's great that they've come to me and asked me the question rather than just doing it. But then, because that then gives me an opportunity and, and we've now documented this out to explain to people, it's not, I'm not the gatekeeper for the organization and, and for the business. And asking me, is it okay if they do it from a security perspective is great because they've thought about security but then it gives me an opportunity for the for me to explain to them. Well, you could be um, taking on the most secure cloud service in the world, but depending on how you're going to configure that, depending on what your data is, how you're going to access that data, where you're going to access that data from, and just you know how you're going to handle all of that, is um, could make it incredibly insecure, and it allows me then to have that conversation with them. And, uh, and it became quite obvious that after several of these questions coming from different areas of the business, I realised that was one thing I had to address for, for academia, was explained to them. It's not just enough to think, you know, is this secure and do InfoSec say it's okay? They have to think about all this range of other things round about. So we, we put together a, a two-page uh, checklist, if you like, all the kind of things you need to consider 
when you're actually um, looking to do research and looking to handle um, uh, research data. Interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that I often recommend to CISO teams is to visit the, their internal customers. And in the case of academic institutions, we're talking about the departments, the colleges, um, and having a candid discussion with them where the CISO team learns about their activities, their challenges from an information security standpoint. And in turn, the CISO team is able to share with them what are the do's and don'ts and why. Uh, hopefully you'll agree that the why part is very important because as much as we love our autonomy and we don't want to be told how to you know, go about surfing and doing stuff, we also need to be made aware of what we should be mindful of, what we should be careful about. So having that free-flowing, candid exchange with the internal customers, I feel, is quite critical. And that could create a friendly environment whereby they then come back to you or feel comfortable coming back to you and saying, Gary, we had a great discussion and we learned so many things. And you also gave us an opportunity to share with you our context. Uh, so now here's the challenge or here's something about um, I'm about to embark on. What are some things that I should be mindful of from a security standpoint? So that's what I'm picking up based on what you just shared. Uh, if you would like to add to that, you're welcome to do so. You're, you're absolutely correct there. Um, we, we now have actually put this together. We, we used, well, we still have uh, a two-page uh, checklist for researchers when they're actually bidding for the research project and the kind of things they have to do and think about. But the security aspect wasn't effectively in their hands in the same format. So I was asked by one of the, the colleges if I could put something together for that. So we've done that. And now they're now looking to have this signed off at senior level to go across the three colleges so that everybody is reading the same advice and, and taking the same advice and following it, um, following it through. Um, which, which I think is great. The, the funny thing was I, I had all that advice up on a website, but it just wasn't being accessed. <laughs> and it took someone within the, within the research area to go, actually, if I had this, you know, I just had this in two pages, it would be great because I could just look at it and I could just go through it and make sure that I've got all, all bases covered. And if I have any questions on that, I can then ask InfoSec, you know, about about these stages of, of the checklist so uh, it's quite exciting and it's you know with hindsight it looks obvious but you know when you're in the middle of all this and dealing with all the other uh, pressures round about it just sometimes takes somebody else to come to you and go if i had it this way in this format it would be ideal so um so i'm, so I'm excited for it yep um in fact um, as you were mentioning uh, how you communicate information security, uh, attack forms, defense mechanisms is re really key. Uh, it's my personal opinion that, you know, providing a, a lengthy list of do's and don'ts over um, an email blast often may not be a very effective approach or even leaving them on a website, expecting people to go and review them may not be the most effective way of getting the word out, I feel there needs to be a mix of very targeted, very precise, very focused communication. And that should be complemented by some kind of an incentive mechanism. Um, that's what I feel would work. I'm sure um, if you have uh, anything to add to that, please do so. Yeah, I do. I mean, <clears throat> our checklist, uh, I should uh, clarify, isn't isn't do's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. It's all about um, you know if you're you know setting up a research project and you're and you're looking at this or that, or if it's something which is going to be um, not uh, yet supported within the university uh, framework, then these are the kind of things that you need to be thinking about, and then we take them off to to other guidance and advice so it's very much about not saying no but uh, giving them the tools and the information for them to make an informed decision uh, because uh, 
it's uh, I don't know what it's what it's like in your environment. Uh, in my environment, I don't have the authority to tell the business not to do something. Mm-hmm. I can advise them on the risk. I can they can ask for my opinion, and I will say, I don't think this is a good idea for these reasons. But at the end of the day, um, the business has to to decide um, whether it's going to to accept the risk. Uh, based on my assessment or or not, and if they decide to go ahead, then I, you know, I do my absolute best to um, to do what I can um, with that. But um, but you know, I'm I'm paid to be paranoid. So, <laughs> oh, well said, well said, and uh, that is an interesting challenge, where you may not have the authority to enforce your recommendations and you are essentially your role is to provide guidance to provide recommendations but on the flip side of that having the internal customers in this case the academic units be responsible for securing their um, data securing the related digital assets there are some positives to that because along with that authority comes the responsibility, comes the accountability, and that has some strength. So there are pros and cons to what I'm hearing. Sure, um, I mean, I can I can say that if if the researcher decides to use supported infrastructure within the university, then most of that responsibility is, is taken away and it's handled by the professional services because we provide those services, you know our own clouds, if you like, and, and all the security that gets built in. And we can actually say, if you're going for a supported infrastructure, then most of that checklist won't apply because it's all handled for you and covered. Um, where the, the the issue has been, has been researchers seeing that, you know, maybe a colleague in another university, in another country has used something and they want to use that too. Then, you know, that is then out with their control so we have to do the assurance on that and work with the researcher to make sure that what they're doing, if it can't fit into our infrastructure and they really have to use something else out in the cloud uh, in another country, then we, we do you know what we can in order to make sure it's, it's done as securely as possible. Sure. Now, we talked about various measures and approaches to help the staff, the faculty, um, secure their their work pathways. How about students? How would you create awareness among students, help students make good decisions when it comes to surfing or visiting different sites or opening certain emails? How do you go about securing students from becoming victims of such attacks? It's, it's all about um, pushing awareness. Uh, we, we're an open site. We we don't have, and, and quite rightly, we, we don't have control over um, student devices that, that they bring in. Um, we we have lots of advice on, on what is good practice. Um, all the talks and the um, the talks that I do in terms of awareness every week, um, are, students can sign up for them as well, and students do do sign up for them. So um, we're you know so any advice. That, that we do give out is generally for for the whole population. It's it's a real challenge because um, you know if without academic population, we have you know every year we have thousands of new students coming in. So we've got thousands of people come into an organisation who don't know what our message is and don't necessarily know what what good security is all about. And it's almost like every year we're starting again. Um, and uh, so there's that churn, which is a challenge in itself. And uh, another challenge that we find is we have an incredibly diverse uh, population. It's one of the great things about working uh, within a university. Um, but it does mean then that is a challenge for the message because you know some some vendors will say to me, you you need to do humour in your um, in your security awareness. And, and I try to explain to them, well, I'm from central Scotland. My <laughs> sense of humour 
is going to be entirely different from someone in another continent <laughs> and they're just not going to get my sense of humor people from liverpool will probably get it um but uh, and, and probably parts of new york would get it but uh you know it's so we, we have to be mindful of that mm -hmm. because what we can't be doing is putting out a message which only part of our population are going to get or engage with and that is a real challenge in itself so it's um it's it's difficult and i wish i had all the answers to that because i don't at the moment um but i know we are doing you know we've made great strides into engaging the students we've actually got some students have joined the um joined the champions network and and we take a lot of student interns as well within within information services and and they get to then you know hear about what we um what we're doing and, and how we're doing it and they help to push that message message out but it's difficult students have so many distractions so yes. much noise round about them that um, you know we we do what we can your means i can totally relate to that because um, as you said students are coming in every year there are different stages in their lives different age groups different maturity levels um they may not be that concerned about the possibility of you know being a um um, a vulnerability point and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, having said that, um, if it's hard to protect the front end here, and when I front mean when I mean front end, I mean here are your humans who are using systems, who are going to different networks, who are who are potential sources of vulnerability. When it's hard to protect those endpoints, what are your options? You know, I would think it would come down to securing your backend, securing your databases and servers that you, and you restrict access to those. What are the kinds of things would you do at the back end, knowing that you have vulnerabilities at the front end? Um, the what, how we protect um, the the back end services is, um, is is no different depending on on the you no. Know, we, we assume the worst. You see what I mean. So that's 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 a given. We we secure those to the high standards uh, possible. I think with students, the the thing that we have done over the last year is um, just purchased a, a password manager and pushed that out. Made it free, freely available to them all because that that is the biggest issue that we see with students is them using reusing passwords and sharing passwords. And uh, so uh, in order to address that, um, we uh, decided to, to invest in, in a password manager and, and we're pushing that heavily because then that takes out the, the hassle that they have of having you know, and remembering uh, secure complex passwords for, for, all their, um, for all the services that, that they need. So that, that is a, a good thing. I, I would love to have the finance to, to be able to push out um, proper endpoint security. On their, on their mobile devices, um, but uh, but I don't at, at present. But again, that's something that, that comes into into the awareness piece and making people aware. Because it's surprising how many students will have, you know, antivirus on their laptops, but they won't have them on their mobiles. And it becomes a surprise. So that's that's the kind of thing I would love to have um, posture checking when uh, when people connect to the network and i know some american universities have done that uh, on a large scale but um, we we are a long way from um being able to do that at the moment well thank you so much for sharing those insights um relating to ransomware and protecting your institution from potential attacks uh, what are some other threat vectors that concern you okay that that's a really interesting one because um I see I see threats in, in two particular areas, mm -hmm. and it's not just about the bad guys and hoods, mm -hmm. though that is important. But I can't change that. There's always going to be people out there in basements, you know, hacking away and trying to break into our network. And um, but for me, uh, within within my own area, um, threats are, and this this actually applies to many organisations. You know, a threat is untested or inadequate backup in the store you know mm -hmm. not having fully tested your business continuity process process and, and your disaster recovery 
Um, how do you deal with insider threats? And not necessarily malicious ones, but, but accidental. Um, you know, these, these are threats. Mm. Supply chain compromise, reliance on third party code. Uh, the fact that a network perimeter has now moved entirely since the pandemic hit and, and people at home using devices, using social media, internet of things in the home. These are all kind of, kind of threats, not being able to patch properly or not doing it in a timely fashion. Even not using what you've purchased. So many companies will purchase security solutions and then they'll not configure them to their full capacity and capability. Um, so for me, these are all are all threats. They're all valid threats. And I know I said at the, stop, at the start of this talk that uh, ransomware was the number one threat. But, you know, perhaps perhaps social engineering is the biggest threat we all face. Uh, because the, the, behind most most attacks uh, is, uh, is somebody socially engineering something in order to, to, to get uh, to get ourselves a way in to an organization and uh, so you know I, I'm leaving that as an open question <laughs> whether, whether social engineering is the biggest threat we face because we can do all sorts of technical stuff uh, to, to fix and secure our networks and our data but social engineering is um, an incredibly difficult uh, thing to, to protect people against. True very true in fact, uh, as you will agree that the the attackers are getting the attacks are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, it's very hard to keep up with the hackers. Uh, you may have to devote significant resources to just do that. That may not be available to many many organizations and institutions. So under the circumstances, you know you protect your data the best you can. You prioritize your protection mechanisms. You offer the best possible training. You find ways of assessing the effectiveness of the training methods. You continue to reinforce um, the importance of uh, being security conscious. You try to instill in the organization, uh, for lack of a better word, an element of information security paranoia. Uh, that may not that may not sound uh, the right approach, especially in an academic institution where you know there the desire is to be open and free. But uh, even to manage the freedom well, we have to find ways of being more conscious and deliberate when we make uh, decisions uh, while we are engaging with different types of tools and technologies. So I don't envy what you do, Gary, and I I, I will. I must uh, thank you and your peers around the world for the, the very challenging task that you have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. So if I may, uh, breaking away from, you know, the kind of plan we had of, uh, you know, of certain asking you certain questions, if I may break away from that and say, what's a good day for you at a professional level? <laughs> oh, a good day for, for me. Um... For, for me right now, uh, the best days I have is when uh, my uh, my trainee members of staff, um, I, I see them doing something or responding to a query that's come in and, and they're getting it just absolutely right, the right tone, uh, the right measure and, uh, and being able to, to, to deal with the problem without coming back to me. And I've had that today. I've just seen something come in about an hour ago, uh, an issue. And uh, one of my trainees who started a year ago, we onboarded during the pandemic. We're still to meet up uh, face to face and uh, and to see them uh, actually um, you know, taking it on is, is just great. And uh, the academic's happy and, and they're happy. They've done a good job. And, and for me, that's um, one of the most satisfying aspects of this is, is bringing uh, new staff up to, to take this on. Absolutely. And I'm sure uh, often... No news is good news, right? There, if there is no news of any kind of attacks, that should... no, 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 no. That's <laughs> when it's quiet. I start to worry. Uh, <laughs> it's what we don't know what's going on. It's, uh, true. Um, that yeah. is that's it. But no, I do. I think it's great. We we are seeing. To be to be fair to to the organisation, you know, it's um there is a heightened sense of awareness now. There have been too many attacks in the last six months. And um, the and we have never been so busy. 
and uh, and people are now there seems to be a groundswell of opinion that people are now getting it they're now coming back and asking us why aren't we doing this and then we're having to say to them because you're academics <laughs> you know <laughs> you wouldn't let us do this before <laughs> you know what you're now asking is uh is is a change in, in opinion and um, an example I'll give you, one example is that uh, we do have academics who like to have local administrative rights on their workstations because they need to install stuff and do stuff. And, and I get that. But as you know yourself, having local admin rights on a, on a workstation is, is a bad idea. It's, it's a threat. If you inadvertently go to a watering hole website and, you know, the, the ease of compromise you know, for the bad guys to, to take on a, on a workstation that's already, you know, has somebody logged in as local admin is, uh, is, is tremendous. So it's, um, so it's that kind of conversation that we're now starting to have as well. Because at one time we could, I, you know, that's, you know, my job, I would like to see, you know, everybody running just with user level privilege on the workstations and not local admin. But that is an argument which um, is has not, uh, you know, the business has gone, yes, we hear you, but we're going to have it anyway. And uh, but now there's discussions now about whether that, that was appropriate. So, so it's uh, so it's, it's interesting times, interesting times, surely. Uh, picking up from where you just stopped about uh, getting the business's attention in this case, the attention of your internal customers that is, the academic units, the academic programs. Um, I often talk about this particular type of initiative uh, known as the destroy your business initiative mm -hmm. that uh, that companies engage in to do their threat analysis, threat scenario analysis, where the senior executives are presenting to the board the different scenarios where a particular product line can go extinct or can, you know, can no longer be competitive. Yes. And under those circumstances, those executives also share with the board, how are they planning? How are they proactively preparing? So using that technique in the context of cybersecurity governance, do you feel presenting to your stakeholders, to your customers, the different threat scenarios and the consequences of, of the outcome of those threats the disastrous outcomes of those threats by presenting those in telling detail, you think that would get the attention and the right response and maybe even greater cooperation when it comes to following through with your guidelines? What are your thoughts? I think in the right circumstances at the right time, that can have an impact. I think it's very difficult for, for people who are not um, necessarily you know, steeped in cybersecurity to actually you know, appreciate what the risk and the impact uh, really is. And it's part of my job to try and articulate that and to make sure that the business not only can point to its risk appetite, but actually understands what it, what it means. But what I have done in my organization is um, carried out a red team exercise which actually gave tangible results from a third party to say, look, this is real, you know, this is, you know, if we were bad guys, this is what would have happened. And, and that has been one of the, I think one of the big light bulb moments this year for people where they suddenly kind of said to me now, I mean, lots of people have thanked me for it and uh, I've kind of went, you know, we get it now. <laughs> now we see what you're talking about. So, uh, so I have tried, you know, we've tried the approach before by saying, you know, this is the, the, the bad thing. Uh, I remember we once mocked up uh, a newspaper, you know, report and headline of, um, of the organization being, being attacked in the hope that that would uh, actually focus people's minds, but, it, but I don't think it did as, as well as I, as I hoped. But uh, actually, you know, I, I do think, you know, red, red teaming, uh, within controlled, uh, you know, settings and environments, is um, in incredibly useful, and uh, and can help you know focus the organisation's mind on that you know this is an immediate problem and it has to be addressed, and and you can't really you know if you've done the red team exercise and you've got the report, 
you, you can't really ignore it at that point, you know. <laughs> you know, because because uh, because if you don't, if you do ignore it and you're hit, then you have nowhere to go at that point. So um, so that's uh, certainly something I would recommend uh, people seriously think about. You know, you just touched upon something so, so important, not to ignore the reports of these security drills, these penetration tests. Yeah. Um, and I, I read about uh, reports, I read about, I read in, um, uh, read in the documents submitted to, to the courts that how organizations have been found to be negligent of the reports they receive on cyber uh, relating to cyber intelligence and not having taken timely action. Uh, that is very concerning. What are some control mechanisms you have in place within your organization to ensure that the reports that you receive from such tests are not ignored, are immediately reviewed and acted upon? Um, well, that, that is actually the job of the, the CISO office, essentially. Um, and we have, you know, we, we have great lines of communication to, to the senior team. And um, so, you know, that, that was the whole point of setting up the CISO function within, within the university to make sure that we kind of sit apart but have a direct line to, to the senior team. And, um, and, you know, and, you know, I'm proud to say that, uh, that it's working uh, uh, incredibly well. So, um, so I can I can say you know these you know the issues that that we 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 raise are, are not being ignored and uh, and are being addressed. So we we have really good lines of communication. Now that didn't happen overnight. It took time to establish, and uh, and you know as you know you you know with everything, it then takes time to maintain that level of communication. And to make sure that, because um, it's in human nature to let things kind of slide a bit after a while, you know, once things are, are going well. Uh, but I'm off, always off the belief that when things are going well, that's when you really have to be on your toes and be on your guard. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. We cannot afford to not be on top of things. That is so critical. Um, Along those lines, and Gary, you've touched upon a lot of areas, tremendous insights. If you would step back and reflect on all that you've done, you've been doing, you're a much sought after speaker, you speak at various conferences, people value what you have to say. Um, what advice and recommendations would you have for your peers at other academic institutions from the standpoint of being a very effective CISO? Okay, that's a good question. I would say first of all that you know how academia work is not wrong; it's just different, and it can be a culture shock to anyone coming in from industry uh, or finance to see how things are actually done done within an within an academic setting. And I think you have to accept that. You know, in my own environment, the university is over five hundred years old, which I, I believe is, is older than your country. And um, it's, uh, you know, it, it can be slow moving, but um, at the same time, the agility that was, that was shown within the academic sector during the pandemic was, it made me proud to be part of that. Uh, we were incredibly agile, but um, it's, it's all about, you know, you, we're not in the business of saying no, and you, you don't stress about what you can't change. Um, because there will be things that you won't be able to, to change. I mean, I'm fortunate that uh, we have good communication lines to, to the top. And uh, so it's um, so uh, that, that is you know, a great thing from my point of view. I would look to um, I would look to see what battles you can win uh, while you're actually you know, pushing your overall strategy and, and not waste time on edge cases, you know. You're looking to get the bulk, you know, the maximum uh, benefit for what you can do, and, and not waste time you know, fixating on on something which you know may never happen. And uh, and if it does, as long as you've got a plan for that, then that's fine. But um, I think ultimately you need to be an optimist <laughs> in this in this line of work, um, because if you're not, uh, I don't think you'll uh, you, you'll go far. Uh, I think as well that you remember that not everyone. Um, cares about security the, the way that I do, you know, 
and that's okay. You know, academics have got so much on their plates at the moment, and um, and many of them are, you know, at the top of their game in terms of what they do, and uh, and they've got enough to think about as it is without thinking about security. So I mean, that's you know, I can't expect uh, people to to understand, and that's that's a trap people can fall into at times. You know, expecting people to know, and and then but then again, you know, why why would they? You know. Uh, they've got other things to think about. So, so my job is to make sure that uh, the business and research continues and does so securely. And, and where I see that it may not be um, as secure as it can be to, to cajole and, and kind of move people you know, into a position where they are doing, doing the right thing uh, all of the time. When it comes to monitoring and assessing cybersecurity performance at an academic institution, uh, what do you all do? Are, are, are there any specific measures or metrics that you all track? And let me um, um, qualify my question by stating, I was at a recent webinar with uh, industry CISOs and they were talking about how the board is not receptive to technical security metrics. They want to see metrics that they, they can relate to from a business standpoint. Um, how does that connect with what you experience in academia? That's a good question. <clears throat> you know, I was I was also in the round table last month with 16 experts and, and we couldn't arrive at a conclusion on that. Um, we actually all wanted to hear what others thought and try out their ideas, but we're all kind of left hanging because it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult, you know, it's... What do you measure? I mean, obviously you have to measure things for a good reason and they need to be meaningful and relevant to use towards making improvements. But what what do you do in cyber? You know, people say, how many cyber attacks have you thwarted this month? And it doesn't really matter. You know, I'm interested in the ones we didn't stop. You know? uh, so it's, I, I actually don't know. I, I don't know how to, to do this. I know we are looking at it. And I know my own uh, my own boss is looking at this very carefully at the moment, but um, all I can think of is that you know I'm I'm conscious that I don't want to be negative, you know I mean feelings are important to address, but we need to show positive outcomes. Now I can show positive outcomes by the the fact that you know I've got about three times as many people now turning up at my sessions than I did this time last year. I now have senior staff attending my awareness sessions and that's something we, we didn't have the other year and that, that's a real sign for me because you know people who would turn up to hear my me talk were people in um in the lower grades it wasn't the managers or the senior managers that were turning up now we're now getting senior people turning up which, which is interesting um and, uh, so so you know so to me that is an improvement but that is you no know, how how do you measure that I, I don't know. Um, you know, I'm a standing item now at the college computing meetings. We weren't 18 months ago, but I am now. I'm on the agenda every every quarter. So we turn up, or one of my colleagues turns up, and then we we talk security. So again, that's that's you know heightened awareness. Uh, so it's um, so there are lots of little things I can point to, and obviously they have a continuous improvement plan all the time. We were constantly tweaking and, and, and putting improvements and enhancements to our security. But measurement, very difficult. And I, I'm, hoping, I, I'm speaking to Oxford University next week. I'm, I'll be asking the same question. I'll be asking them the question um, because uh, I put it at the end of my slides <laughs> about measurement. Well, if I can share something from a metric standpoint, there is something that I recommend to people, people in industry, I call them uh, preparedness indicators. And that comprises of a set of cybersecurity readiness scores broken up into three dimensions, commitment, preparedness, and discipline. It comes out of my book. Um, if you get a chance, take a look at it. You might find um, some, things, some things that you could um, you know, pick from and you know, suitably customize it. And along those lines, um, Organizations might also be interested in uh, finding about the results of the different disaster scenarios and how quickly they can recover from 
the simulation of those scenarios. So those are some things that organizations can definitely try to do. Uh, while measurement is no easy challenge, no easy task, it's always difficult to measure. The data that you need for good measurement could be hard to get. But I believe the effort to try and measure, to try to get to reasonable um, set of metrics, a reasonable set of indicators is something worth the effort and will be valued you know, during times when the organization is having to report to the media or to the court as to whether they did their due diligence, whether they were on top of things. So something to keep, keep, in, keep in mind, and we can talk about that later on. Um, Gary, thank you so much for your candid, thoughtful, and very insightful responses. I appreciate it very much. Any final thoughts, uh, anything that I didn't touch upon that you would like to share with the listeners? I think the one of my biggest concerns now and uh, is, is IoT, Internet of Things, and, and smart cities. Because in a sense, that's compounding many of the, the problems uh, or, or potentially will compound the problems that we see within our own environments just now. Um, there's, there's a race on now to connect absolutely everything and make everything smart and connect it to the internet. And uh, I'm quite fascinated by this, but uh, the security challenges around that are, are just mind blowing. And, um, and um, the genie's out the bottle, so to speak, you know, it's going to happen. Um, my concern is that it's happening and there is not uh, sufficient, um, you know, Security hasn't been hasn't been baked in, you know. Almost anybody can can produce, you know, an internet kettle with, with an insecure chipset that can't be flashed or updated, and and put that out to market. And um, so that's that's a concern because you know people are connecting their homes to the internet, and uh, and they've got so many devices, different types of devices within their homes, which will be connected to the internet. And um, that to me is a, is, a, is a challenge for society and, and one I don't have the answers for at the moment. Well, you've answered so many questions. I don't expect you to have answers to everything, Gary. Uh, <laughs> uh, you have been terrific. I can't thank you enough. Thanks again well, thank for, you. for your time and um, wish you a great day. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. A special thanks to Gary Scobie for his time and insights. If you like what you heard, please leave the podcast a rating and share it with your network. Also subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this podcast is for general guidance only. The discussants assume no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained in this podcast is provided on an as-is basis with no guarantee of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. The opinions and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the discussants and not of any organization.